Welcome to episode 22 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. My name is Abhinav. I'm joined here with my co-host, Tyler. How are you doing today, Tyler? Just phenomenal, Abhinav. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, really excited to get this one started. Uh, on today's episode, we get to talk to Amanda Daly. She is the head of medical at Canopy Growth Corp. So touching a little bit on the cannabis industry this episode, which we're both really excited about. But we're first going to kick it off with Tyler talking about organ transplants using animal organs. So that should be an interesting little discussion. And with that, let's kick it off. So transplants are obviously a major part of our healthcare system. They solve a lot of health problems and these new organs can save a lot of lives. However, waiting lists for these organs, especially kidneys, have started to get really long. There are more than uh, 100,000 people waiting for kidney transplants in the United States right now, with about 13 of them dying every day, according to the National Kidney Foundation. So with that said, scientists have been turning to engineering and transplanting animal organs as a potential way to cut down that wait list. So in July, a team of Israeli researchers had developed a human-pig hybrid organ, which was an organ from a pig that contained human blood vessels, and they believe that kind of development could alleviate the shortage of transplant organs. The many attempts to implant animal organs into humans have been largely unsuccessful up until this point, with most of them experiencing acute rejections. You put the organ in, it just doesn't take. This attempt, though, was led by Dr. Sahar Cohen of Bellinson Hospital in Israel. So one of the main triggers for organ rejection that this team identified was the internal lining of its blood vessels. So that team removed the coating from the pig's blood vessels and replaced it with coating that is more friendly to the human immune system, which was engineered from human placenta cells. Now, Dr. Cohen said placenta plays a key role in connecting to humans, so it could be effective in connecting other pairs of beings. The method underwent successful ex vivo uh, experimentation, so outside the body experiments with heart, lungs, kidney, pancreas, and limbs. After this research was published in scientific reports by Nature Research, Cohen said they next wanted to try these experiments in animals and within the next five years in humans. Now, unfortunately for Dr. Cohen, it appears that another team has beat them to it. So last month, a surgical team from NYU Langone Health attached a pig kidney to the blood vessels of a brain dead woman and observed it functioning normally. So it was filtering and producing urine and wasn't showing signs of rejection. The research is yet to be published since it's so recent, but it's being regarded as a major breakthrough in the field, obviously. The organ was developed by Revivacor, a regenerative medicine company out of Virginia Tech, and their research team regarded some sugars in pig cells as the trigger for an aggressive response from the human immune system. So they genetically engineered the donor pig to knock out the gene that encodes those sugar molecules that cause the rejection response. So we obviously still don't know much about the longevity of the organ or how it works when it's sealed inside of someone permanently, but this could definitely be a breakthrough that saves a lot of lives around the world if it comes to fruition through all sorts of more rigorous testing. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on this whole concept, Abhinav, of taking organs from animals, putting them in humans? Thanks for bringing the story in. Uh, really interesting. I think uh, as we better understand and more research is out there, as you mentioned, understanding some of the causes for rejection, some of the molecular or genetic causes for rejection of tissues, 
And then with the advancements in genetic engineering, uh, tissue engineering, uh, 3D cell culturing, uh, those types of advancements can allow for creation of organs or modification of animal organs that potentially reduces the uh, issue of rejection. I think this is a an interesting research area, something that I think we'll only get better at in the future. Uh, and I think companies around the world are definitely investigating this because as you uh, mentioned, uh, long wait lines, long wait lists for uh, organ transplants is, is a burgeoning issue right now in Canada as well. Um, and I think uh, definitely advancements in research can address this issue. Uh, thanks for bringing the story in. I think it's a real interesting talk. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I know I said that one company or one organization beat the other researchers to the punch, but this is obviously a work in progress for everyone and there's no winners and losers. The more research teams and hospitals and universities that are working on this in, in different ways, like the one company genetically engineered the donor pig, another company was uh, uh, taking out the lining of the blood vessels in an organ. So just taking attacking it from different directions uh, is a great way to innovate and find an innovative approach to this issue. And I think just having uh, research done on it all around the world in a bunch of different ways will only lead to better success in this field. And with that, that'll, that'll do it for the segment this week. On to the interview. Okay, Amanda Daly is the VP Medical at Canopy Growth, one of Canada's leading cannabis producers that focuses on research, product development, and innovative production capabilities. Amanda's role includes all Canadian commercial medical activities for Spectrum Therapeutics, the medical division of Canopy Growth, including overseeing sales and marketing and the creation and implementation of continuing medical education programs for healthcare professionals. With other pre previous experience in the pharmaceutical industry, we cannot wait to hear her insights. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you on and uh, exciting. This is our first episode diving into the cannabis industry and we're, uh, let's get it started. So early on, we usually start off with kind of your early education and we see that you did your BSc at Dalhousie University and a postgraduate degree uh, in sports psychology. So while you were in university, what were kind of your career aspirations as you try to decide where you wanted to go? Sure. So I did a BSc, as you mentioned, and I really had my sights set on the field of sports psychology. So really, uh, the aspiration was to work with professional sports teams and use psychology to improve performance and teamwork. And I did do not a postgraduate degree, but a postgraduate year of research in sports psychology, which uh, allowed me the opportunity to further dive in and also have a bit of a reality check. I had intended on pursuing a master's in that field here in Ottawa, where I later moved. And during my postgraduate year of research, I started exploring what were the job opportunities in Canada, and it seemed that the opportunities were few and far between. So that left me with needing to find another path to be on that wasn't sports psychology. Yes, that initially led into going into banking, which is a little bit outside of that uh, healthcare area, but then you got back into pharma. What drew you to the pharma area? Sure. So banking was always meant to be a part-time gig for me. I came from a family of bankers 
And we were actually, my mother, father, and myself all working for different Canadian banks. And, and so it was just easy for me, something I knew helped put me through school. And when I decided after Dalhousie to leave Halifax for job prospects in Ottawa, I first was drawn to a more science and medical related field. I spent a year at the Canadian Medical Protective Association, which is the Physicians Malpractice Association. And it was while I was there finishing up a one-year contract that CIBC reached back out to me, said they knew I had moved to Ottawa. Would I like to come to, to work in sales there? And I did go for a brief period again back to banking, but really it wasn't, it wasn't ever a passion. And at the time I had a friend who didn't have a science background. He didn't have any sales experience and he was working in the pharmaceutical industry. And I thought, wow, I have a science degree. I have sales experience in the financial world. That sounds right up my alley. So I put my mind to it many years ago, back in 1999. And within six weeks, I was working at that same small pharmaceutical company and it kicked off a 15 year career in the pharmaceutical world. Yeah, so we see that you did uh, work at as a pharmaceutical sales rep at Solvay Pharma and then eventually at Pfizer Canada, where you were a health education manager. How do you say some of these early experiences working in pharma really prepared you uh, and gave you some insights as you then entered into the cannabis industry? Excellent. So you're right. I started out in small pharma, I would call it for about five years and was recruited to big pharma to Pfizer. And at Pfizer, I got to use my science background. I got to use my selling background. And I really moved into an education role where I was working on the creation of educational programs for healthcare professionals to help them better understand disease states. And so I, I swear I was definitely the employee voted least likely to ever be working at a cannabis company uh, back when the wheels started turning on that front. And if you'd like, I can explain a bit about exactly what happened back in 2013, 2014. So back in 2013, uh, Pfizer was having some restructuring, which was not unusual. Many companies change things up every few years, tweak the business model. And certainly in the pharmaceutical world, there have been some downsizing and whatnot. And I knew that my family was complete. And this was a period in my life where I wanted to focus on my career. But I felt that in order to make a big shift and kick it into into high gear, I would need to make a change. So feeling very brave, I let Pfizer know that during the next restructuring, they would be more than welcome to uh, give me a layoff package and set me free, if you will, to find a new pursuit. And so during this period, I was thinking, what am I going to do? There are a number of medical associations here in Ottawa. So that seemed like a maybe a possible fit certainly no shortage of pharmaceutical companies at the time as well, who might've been hiring. But what was happening in 2014 was the new cannabis sector started to, to open up. And I say new because medical cannabis has been here in Canada since 2001. We're celebrating 20 years of legal medical access, but in 2014, a more commercial landscape for Canada opened up. And my husband was researching the cannabis sector as an investment opportunity. And around the same time, a friend of ours in the medical community said, Amanda, 
With your background in the pharmaceutical world, those skills and that knowledge would be a great fit for cannabis. And I thought, oh, this, this is very comical. It didn't sound serious. It didn't sound like a, a viable business idea. But I, I was inspired to do some more research. And at Pfizer, for the just over decade I was there, I was largely working in the pain the field of pain, so medicines to treat pain, various types. And when I started researching cannabis for medical purposes, I discovered that the body has an endocannabinoid system, meaning the active compounds in the cannabis plant actually attach to and interact with receptors in our body. And this was really fascinating. And I knew already that pain in general is such an unmet need. So many people suffer for so many years and there is no real magic bullet, one size fits all treatment. So I started thinking, wow, maybe cannabis can be part of that solution. So it ended up working that I finished up at Pfizer on a Friday and literally on the Monday, headed over to Smith Falls to work for what was at the time Tweed prior to becoming Canopy Growth. And that was in June of 2014. Entering the cannabis field, was there any fear of the stigma surrounding it? When, like when you think about, oh, like I'm going to add this, this stigma that there is to my resume and to my LinkedIn. And when I tell people about my job, there was a bit, especially at that time, a little bit more of a stigma surrounding cannabis and even medical cannabis. What did you do to kind of shake that and convince yourself that it was a, a right move and, and you know, you, it was a good, uh, it would look good on your career. That's a fair question. And you're right. The stigma was, was all around. And I got a lot of funny looks uh, from colleagues who thought I was absolutely uh, off my rocker to choose to leave the pharma industry, which there are so many benefits of working there. There are great companies, great business experience. You really build your business acumen. Um, you know, just a great, a, a great opportunity. And why would I leave that for cannabis? And I guess, yes, the stigma was there, but because of the science aspect, I really did feel inspired and knowing that there are so many people in need left me inspired. And really something that always rings true for me is I like to believe there are always good jobs for good people. So while I viewed this as a risk and a chance I was taking, I told myself big pharma, little pharma will always be there. And if I try this for six months or a year and it's a bust, Yes, it's resume building. And I get to tell people in an interview that guess what, I took a chance on something brand new. And that chance has definitely paid off. It's, it's very cool how you were able to apply some of what you learned in uh, Pfizer as an education manager and also leading an education role at Tweed. Comparing some of the culture at a place like Pfizer to Tweed, would you say that uh, Tweed was more entrepreneurial or um, startup based culture, given that the industry was maybe just picking up at that time, what do you say were some of those kind of organizational differences you felt while there? I would say you captured it in one word, entrepreneurial. When I was having my final interview, I was told uh, by a senior executive at that point in time that listen, this is a startup, it's a new industry, you're taking a chance, we're all taking a chance, you need to be prepared to work your butt off and to do many different roles wearing many different hats that some of which you wouldn't have even known that you would need to be doing, but that's the nature of a startup. It's all hands on deck and that this place was going to become a rocket ship, which sounded very aspirational on their part. 
because they were just getting off the ground. So it was so entrepreneurial that when I showed up, I was literally handed a laptop in a box, a phone in a box and pointed to a desk and said, there you go. No job description, no roadmap of what needed doing. I really did get in on the ground where I sat at the table and helped map out what were the needs of the company? How would we grow this business? Whereas in an established organization, there are very clear expectations. What is the role? What are you going to be doing day to day? I usually walk into a pre-built business plan, a strategic plan. And so all of that had to be shaped from the ground up, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been such an amazing seven-year ride and still feels like just yesterday back at the Hershey factory in Smith Falls. Yeah, no, that sounds uh, like a super interesting start. We've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs on here, and it sounds like very similar to that environment. So obviously that role had a, was very multifaceted, covered a lot of different areas of medical education and outreach. And even your role at Pfizer, I'm sure that was a little bit more defined in terms of the medical and health education responsibilities. But from people we've talked to in the past, like we had a uh, medical science liaison from Amgen on the podcast or just other different medical educators, we tend to find that they often have like a clinical background or or a pharmacy background. And uh, that's kind of how a lot of people get into medical education. So as someone without as much of a clinical background, and you came more from sales, what type of skills did you need to go from sales and a more business oriented background to those health education roles? Yeah, that's a great question. And I did have the good fortune, although it was during my medical education work at Pfizer, of doing some structured education from a St. Francis Xavier University adult education program. But aside from that, you're working with professionals. So it does actually help to have a good sales mind and a business mind when working in medical education, because of course, you want to put forward balanced absolutely unbiased education. It has to be well-referenced from a scientific perspective, but from a sales angle, really what we're trying to do is help help the customer, help the patient. Who is the end user of the company's products? It's the patient. So how can we help a physician or a healthcare professional understand what they need to know about your therapeutic area and your products? And so all of that sales experience with Pfizer and Solvay Pharma as well definitely did prepare me for the work in medical education. I did want to take some time now to dive into your current role uh, at Canopy Growth Corp. You're more you're associated more with Spectrum Therapeutics, uh, being more the medical division of the company. Uh, what would you say are the separations between the more commercial division of cannabis sales versus more of the patient-focused medical stream uh, at Canopy Growth. Are those two divisions very separated or what type of resources might be shared between the two? Sure, it's a great question. And actually, there are there's definitely a lot of overlap because really when you think about it, these products are cannabis for medical purposes, but they're still cannabis products. And so many of the products that are sold in the recreational market are also sold in the medical market. But the difference is that in the medical channel, uh, a customer has been authorized what we call a medical document, essentially a prescription. So they've been prescribed this as a therapy. So when they come to us, in the medical channel, they have a healthcare professional overseeing their treatment. They are being given guidance on dosing, where to start, you know, how to titrate to an effective dose with minimal to no side effects. 
those are really key differentiators. And it's important as well when you think, well, Amanda, it's been legal in Canada now for three years. Why don't people just go down the store and visit a bud tender? Well, number one, they shouldn't be getting their medical advice from a bud tender. But also there's some advantages to the medical channel. From a tax perspective, medical cannabis fully qualifies as a medical expense on Canada Revenue Agency website. They list all of the expenses. So if you're doing your taxes and adding up your medical expenses, you certainly would count these among those. Certain uh, drug plans, drug benefit plans will cover medical cannabis products as well. And so th those are differentiating factors. And we're also participating in research, both in the recreational side and the medical side at Canopy. We care very much about the quality and safety of our products. So we do have research projects happening that relate to both uh, areas of the business. And on the medical side, for example, we're presently conducting a real world evidence a pain registry, as well as some work with long-term care. So, you know, the research side is definitely present in the medical world too. You talked a lot about how, uh, you know, you're trying to keep people on that medical side who need that medical cannabis and, and so that they're getting the right advice to go along with that medical cannabis. Do you ever find that there's any competition internally between the uh, the casual cannabis user uh, demographic and the medical cannabis? And are you like internally within Canopy trying to pull or, or you know, uh, push patients from one side to another? Oh, that's a good question. I would say that Canopy, and it, it's, it's interesting, um, our vision is literally dedicated to unleashing the power of cannabis to improve lives. And we're out there doing that both in the recreational world and in the medical world. So I don't think we view it as a competition. In fact, the larger team that I'm a part of is Canada, a Canada-wide business team, which very much includes the recreational side. And we have definitely carved out our own area in medical in the sense that we offer our leading medical brand is called Spectrum Therapeutics, and it's only offered in the medical world. And so, you know, there's nothing to compete around if people want to take advantage of the Spectrum um, easy manner of dosing and titration with our color coding system with the Spectrum Therapeutics products. They're getting that only in medical. Um, we do share resources, of course, because in the sense that, you know, we have one digital team that's running websites for us. So there is some overlap there, but I would say it's very collaborative and we do look to learn from each other because certainly um, purchasers of cannabis for medical purposes, they still have customer feedback, so on and so forth. So things that will benefit everybody, not just one side of the business or the other. You just mentioned uh, the Spectrum Therapeutics color coding system there and just digging into the website a little bit. I thought that was a very interesting approach on using a color uh, color coding system to titrate uh, a specific uh, medical cannabis product for a patient. Uh, in that, uh, what makes this color coding system maybe unique in the industry? Uh, and are other companies using a similar model? And Kind of how, how did this idea originate to use a color coding system in the medical cannabis space? Sure. So the, the origin of it, it, it actually predated the uh, spectrum all the way back to when the company was called Metrum and they created the Metrum Spectrum. And the 
canopy leader acquired Metrum and we knew it was a winning recipe, this color coding titration schedule, because we would hear doctors tell us, oh, my patients, they're coming to me telling me that they want a yellow product or a red product. And really what the color coding system does is gives a common language, an easy language that both a clinician and a patient can discuss and understand what is meant by it. So we say our yellow product is CBD dominant, our blue products are balanced and include some THC and our red products are THC dominant. So really what this is doing is just making an easy way to have the conversation about the types of products that might benefit one patient versus another. Have other people done it? I've seen some similar uh, attempts, but honestly, we've incorporated the color coding right into our product naming system. So I feel Spectrum Therapeutics definitely has an advantage. So Spectrum and Canopy are obviously, like you said, very research focused organizations. And in your role, it's kind of like a liaison between that research side of the organization and the sales and marketing side, just getting that message across to potential patients or healthcare providers. But as someone who worked in pharma in the health education space for so long, are there any differences in the way that you need to conduct that health education side of things? Or is there extra red tape or are there different, like are some physicians not willing to learn about uh, marijuana or, or what are the differences between pharma and, and cannabis there? Sure. I would say an, that is an important question. And realistically, whether it's pharma or cannabis, many healthcare professionals do uh, closely critique their education, which is important. And they want to know that it's coming from balanced sources. And so right out of the gate, what we did at Canopy back when it was Tweed was make sure that we were the first company to have an accredited, so meaning recognized by the College of Family Physicians, an accredited education program. So that program was given the seal of approval, which means it's been reviewed, it's, it's balanced and unbiased. Similarly, we participated in the creation or we supported the creation of program development with pharmacy associations, for example, to get that similar seal of approval. And these, these education programs, the ones that are accredited, have been designed uh, entirely at arm's length. So we can say, listen, here's the scientific committee that put this education program together. We hope you will attend. And some of the education as well, even the education that is not accredited, so to speak, there is definitely a need and a hunger out there for healthcare professionals to learn more about how to use cannabis in their practice. And so we definitely are closely scrutinizing who we choose as speakers. We want people that are reputable in their peer groups in the community are definitely experienced clinicians and so that they can present the evidence um, very fairly to the audience. So I would say closely scrutinized, even more closely because it's a cannabis company. But I think if you look at the team of professionals that work uh, on my team, they all have pharmaceutical experience. So they're coming to a doctor's office knowing what it is that a physician will want to hear about, knowing the kind of quality education and quality products that they've come to expect. And so that's what we're representing at Canopy. And our team does a great job at that. Yes, it definitely sounds like the experience of working in pharmaceuticals has been very valuable uh, in the same educational space in medical cannabis. And just from uh, out of curiosity, from a Canada guidelines or policy perspective, this Canada and state specific 
cannabis education guidelines as they do for pharmaceutical products? Or what are kind of the rules uh, for the, uh, the playing field in this space? Sure. So like from a regulatory perspective, I'm not the, the expert, so to speak, but I can share that if an education program is accredited, it has to undergo that third party review and be developed not by the company. For unaccredited education and the like, we're not allowed to make product claims. So that is very similar to pharma. And these types of things are written into the Cannabis Act. So that governs our behavior. So very similar to pharmaceutical um, we have very stringent advertising. That's why you see, you know, even on the recreational stores, it has to be plain packaging containing warnings. That's the same in medical. You'll receive a product that contains warnings, same type of label and so on. And for education, it's the same. We're not making product claims. If you come to a Spectrum Therapeutics run education program, you're hearing about the evidence, the published evidence in peer reviewed journals of how cannabis has benefited different therapeutic areas. You'll hear about published consensus statements where uh, experts have gathered on a particular topic, like what should the dosing be? and so on. So it is very much like the pharmaceutical world there. It's, it's a very highly regulated industry in general, cannabis in Canada, much more so than obviously in the US where it still uh, lacks federal regulation. So obviously the industry as a whole was shaken and grew majorly in 2018 when recreational cannabis became legalized. Uh, I'm sure your role had many changes during that time, maybe not as many as the recreational side of canopy since, like you said, uh, medical cannabis had been legalized for a while then. But what would you say is, was the biggest change to your role during that legalization? Was it the growth in competition or what, what, what changed there? Sure, I would say that more canopy specific, we have undergone some workplace transformation, structural transformation to best set us up to become a leading CPG company. And as a result of that, my responsibilities have shifted where it used to be very broad. I was once responsible for the, the customer care center, which is our 100 plus person call center. I oversaw global marketing for the medical side and so on. And so now it's it's much more streamlined because we're really focusing on setting ourselves up for success in this next stage of growth. And, but honestly, since legalization, on the one hand, there were some people saying, oh, watch, just watch, Amanda, just watch. The medical business is just going to erode. It's going to deteriorate because people can just go down the street now. But actually, while Canada-wide, there's been a small attrition in the medical customer count, for example. It has definitely not gone away. The interest is there. The fact that there is legal recreational use, I think, has made the dinner table conversation even more easy to have with your relatives about, have you thought about trying this as a therapy? I hear you saying you've tried all these other things. It really has helped to destigmatize the use of cannabis in general. And certainly it's, it's still a topic of conversation for, for medical use. Anytime I've gone into a recreational store, if I'm there for more than five or 10 minutes, I often hear somebody asking a bud tender, oh, I'm having trouble sleeping. What do you recommend? And of course, they're not allowed to give advice. They're not supposed to be giving advice uh, for medical use. So there's absolutely still a need. And I would say the change is maybe it's, it's more, even more topical. It's, it's more of a conversation that more and more people are open and willing to have. 
I did want to take a second here to dive into the uh, pandemic and how that relates to the medical cannabis industry. So definitely the pandemic uh, evidence shows there was a rise of mental health concerns such as anxiety, depression. Uh, at, in the medical division, has the team kind of seen that education about these type of mental health concerns and how cannabis products can be beneficial in these cases? Uh, has there been a rise in this type of thinking or how, how does medical cannabis play into maybe some of the post-pandemic uh, changes in mental health that we're seeing? Sure, that's a great question. No doubt, cannabis has long been used for anxiety, for example. We hear that from clinicians and with the pandemic, that's no different. I can't say that I can think of a whole bunch of pandemic specific examples, but I do know that in the early days of the pandemic, when regulatory bodies were telling Canadians, hey, you better stock up on medicine, we definitely saw an impact there. People were worried um, that they wouldn't have enough of their medicine, so they were ordering a lot of medicine. But one thing that has impacted us for sure, and for the for the patient, I think for myself as well, accessing healthcare has been more difficult during this pandemic because many physicians' offices are no longer open five days a week. You can't just wander in, have a chat with the secretary and ask for an appointment the following week to talk about your concern. Many offices are either operating virtually or only doing in person one or two days a week. So one of the concerns that we have is are people able to have that conversation with their physician about me medical cannabis if the physician has limited time and they're doing phone consultations? So that that is one question mark, I would say. But other than that, um, you're right. Probably more people are self-medicating, so to speak. Um, and that probably translates to many people uh, potentially shopping in the recreational tr channel, trying to self-medicate without help. Yeah, no, the, the pandemic's definitely been uh, been a ride for the cannabis industry. Is I know Canopy has grown their 2.0 products a, a good amount during the pandemic, like gummies and edibles and those sort of things. What kind of role do these kind of alternative cannabis uh, products play in the medical side of things? Yeah, so I would say that on the medical side, many customers, many medical customers are looking for a soft gel, a pill, because that's what they know and have come to trust in the form of medicine. It's a very precise dosing and it's very portable, discreet, and so on. So many of our medical customers are purchasing soft gels or oils where they would measure their own dose of oil. But we do actually see that gummies are an option, flour for inhalation. Of course, we encourage vaporization to heat it without combustion, but we do still see all of the formats that exist. There is a demand in the medical channel. And I think that makes sense when you consider some people are just a bit pill averse. They have a hard time. Maybe they don't wanna have to crush, it, crush up one more pill in their day. They, they think taking the gummy would be convenient. So I would say all formats resonate in medical, but still by and large, many consumers are looking for the soft gels and the oils. And those as well, it's the long acting format versus inhalation. So that's probably a lot of what they're looking for. That's really interesting. I, uh, I think it's very cool how uh, Spectrum focuses on innovation and the innovation side. And really the idea of meeting uh, direct consumer needs by creating a specific desired effect. 
so as you mentioned, the team is still doing ongoing research in kind of creating new products. How does the team decide a particular target customer or a target need to be met? And what does that process look like at the uh, intersection of customer needs and product development? Oh my gosh, I think you will have to do a whole podcast, but we will have to invite our innovation team because I simply cannot answer that except to say perhaps that absolutely we conduct a lot of market research. So we want to understand the needs of the consumer and let that be the foundation for the work that we're doing. So I would say our work is guided by insights from consumers and potential consumers. And that's also true when we're considering innovation. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, also with just regards to what your role is with the organization, how much is your role intertwined with market research when it comes to what the needs are on the on the healthcare side of things? Is it looking at what healthcare providers would want, what patients would want? How does your role intersect with market research? Sure. So in the current canopy structure, my role is focused on execution, but I also have, and my team has that link to the consumer. So we're the ones working with healthcare professionals who prescribe to the end consumer. And it is kind of cool in the sense that at a pharmaceutical company, it goes through a pharmacy. So you're, you're that one more step removed from the consumer. Whereas from our perspective here at Canopy with Spectrum Therapeutics, we do have a closer connection to that end consumer because we do ship direct. So of course we have insights and information available at our fingertips to understand some of the needs, some of the the consumption patterns of, of the different customers, but also our team would work with the insights and market research team to say, we do want to learn more about what it is Uh, clinic educators, for example, the people that are actually giving hands-on guidance to medical patients, what is it that they need from us? So we will conduct um, an interview via that team. So our team is sort of the boots on the ground, but we're giving feedback that would inform market research. Okay, here are some things we think we need to know, and then they would help us shape those projects to get the answers. That's uh, great to hear about the, I'm sure there's a whole team behind all the divisions of research, innovation, and it's, it's really great to see where your role uh, comes into this. Uh, I, one interesting piece I noticed on the website was uh, the creation of products for animals or pets from Spectrum Therapeutics. I think this might be something many people might not know about in uh, medical cannabis, but is there any, uh, can you please shed maybe some light on what it means to create medical products for pets? Sure. So I do want to caveat that I am responsible solely for Canada. And sadly, we do not yet have animal products here in Canada, although it is possible in the coming year or years, because I know Health Canada is looking at what they call cannabis health products, and they're not ruling out potential animal use. But you're right, we have an animal division, they're active in the United States. And Martha Stewart is kind of our well known household name consultants on on that project and that division. And so pets are benefiting, for example, from CBD. And so we have a division dedicated entirely to that. And as a relatively new COVID dog owner myself, I hope that one day soon we'll have these products available here in Canada. Yeah, no, that's definitely cool. It seems like the uh, the company's growing in a lot of different geographic and, and demographic areas. 
But uh, behind Canopy, you, we've talked a lot about that research and how it's such a research-rich organization. Uh, just looking at, you know, following Canopy in the news, they acquire other companies, sometimes acquire other products. And that seems like a complicated process in general for other companies, general consumer product companies. But when you look at something as research-focused as a medical cannabis or, or a cannabis product, how do you integrate an acquired product or an acquired organization within within Canopy from a, a medical standpoint when those acquisitions occur? Do you do they bring their research teams with them? Do you just acquire the product and conduct research on it yourself? How does that research transition occur? Okay. So from a, from a mergers and acquisitions perspective, I would say it is very similar to the pharma world where you would see companies merging or one acquiring the other. And now everybody's promoting the full suite of products. And I can't, because I don't work on the research side myself, I can't speak at all to that point, but I can absolutely say that with the recent acquisitions of Supreme and Ace Valley, we are absolutely working on bringing those brands into the medical store, for example. So once we have acquired other brands and other companies, we are able to make the full suite of products available and more choice is better for the medical customer and certainly as well for the recreational customer. As far as research goes, I'd have to tap into, into that team to get better insights, but you're right, Spectrum Therapeutics and Canopy on the whole, we're very research focused and we put our name on quality products. As we come uh, to the close of our episode here, uh, what would you say is uh, the future state of medical cannabis in Canada, Canada? Or what are you really excited for uh, in the future of your type of role in the cannabis industry? Sure. Well, the seven years has flown by since that commercial expansion in 2014. So what's coming next that gets me excited is cannabis health products, or what we hear being dubbed as CHP. Health Canada has assembled a scientific committee to discuss the possibility of making cannabis available for health purposes without the prescription of what we call a medical document, without an authorization. So the thinking is that the role of pharmacy could be coming into play now. So these products might be available in pharmacy, maybe behind the counter, maybe on the shelf, we're not sure yet, but we believe that in the next little while, Canada will see some new legislation relating to cannabis health products. And then number two is the Federal Cannabis Act. That's due for a review in 2023. So the Health Canada Cannabis Committee originally said, we're going to leave medical alone for five years. And in 2023, we're going to review the act and make sure or in time for 2023, we're going to review the act and see if the medical cannabis channel should remain the same or what other um, what other channel we should consider. And so that review is coming up soon. And it will be interesting again to see what is the role of pharmacy, because many medical customers want this treated as much like a medicine as possible, which means heading to the pharmacy and picking it up at the same time as their other prescriptions. So all of these things would be removing barriers. So I see it as an exciting time where what lies ahead will remove more barriers and further normalize the use of cannabis for medical patients. And yeah, that, that's our hope. Yeah, that's super awesome. It's definitely an industry that we're really interested in and, and looking at the growth there. It seems like such a great place for people who are early in their careers like us to look to get a start since all those organizations are growing at such a rapid pace. And uh, yeah, we just thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and telling us a little bit more about the industry, about your role in it. 
And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I think people are going to really enjoy this. I hope so. And I promise you, if either of you are interested, there is never a dull day in the cannabis sector. And, you know, reach out anytime for more questions and insights if you need them. It's been fun connecting. So thank you. And that brings us to the end of episode 22. Thank you so much for following us and keeping up with our episodes. It really means so much to us when we have listeners reach out and share how these podcasts that help them in making career decisions or decisions on how they want to take their education. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to uh, share the next one. Till next time. <laughs>